we look at fear and we look at danger and we look at causes of stress and danger is real it's tangible fear is just an emotion fear is about the perception of danger the perception of trauma whatever it might be you know what i've learned to do is differentiate the two identify what is real and what is a genuine danger and identify what is just a fear as a result of a perception hello welcome to wait you what It's the podcast where you hear people's surprising stories of struggle, lived experience, and self-discovery. Each episode, I have a new guest on, and you get a new perspective or something to take away to use in your everyday life. Today on Wait You What, we're talking to someone whose ability to deal with stress under pressure is the difference between life and death for him. Chris Hunter is a bomb disposal technician. He diffuses live bombs for a living. And he has some advice on how we can get better at dealing with stress under pressure too. In the world of bomb disposal, there's something called the long walk. We call it the long walk or the lonely walk. When you're actually up against an improvised explosive device, we call it a single man risk, single person risk. And and the idea is that, you know, because these things often have secondary booby traps, you know, they're designed to... Um, kill you as the operator just as much as they are designed designed to kill the the target whether that's law enforcement the military or indeed civilians you know so they're quite often will be something nasty a secondary device waiting to catch you out so after years of experience you know when multiple operators used to go down there and have a bit of a conflab and then you know they'd all get killed um, we made it a single person risk so in other words sometimes at some point it's going to have to be one person one person only walking up to a live bomb to defuse it. There's that point at which you've got to go and walk up to the bomb. And that's the moment at which the, uh, you know, the visor comes down, the drawbridge goes up behind you, and it's just you taking that walk up to the device. And you leave everybody else in the safety of the incident control point. And, you know, it might be a 200-metre walk, but sometimes it can feel like 200 miles. You know, every step's laboured, and you can never make a, a complete plan because time's always against you as well. So you make a, uh, a workable plan. And then as you're taking each step towards that device, you're constantly sort of taking in every aspect of the environment and reevaluating and, you know, tweaking your plan, if you like. Sometimes you can actually hear your own heartbeat, you know. Um, you probably can't, but, so, you know, psychologically, that moment that you step away from the, uh, the control point, from the, from the safety of your team, I mentioned, you know, the drawbridge going up, the visor coming down. Um, you're also going to the zone, and basically, you know, in everyday life, we've got a million things going through our minds. What are we going to have for dinner tonight? You know, how our football team is doing, what, you know, what the kids are doing at school, whatever it might be. Um, but when you're there, it's truly elemental. And it's literally, it sounds a bit corny and cliched, but it is just you and the bomb. And you're totally focused. As you're making the approach, you're looking at the situational awareness. You're looking for, you know, presence of snipers. You're looking for discoloration of the earth, any ground sign that, you know, might suggest there's a a nasty device lying in wait on the approach to the bomb. And, and, you know, you might be carrying a couple of hundred pounds of equipment as well, 50 degrees Celsius in the midday sun. And then eventually you get up to the device itself and you're interpreting that bird's nest loop of wires and trying to work out, you know, how it's basically configured, um, how it's designed to function and crucially how you can neutralise it. And when he's face to face with that live bomb, He's not just trying to get into the mind of the bomb, but he's trying to get into the mind of the bomb maker. 
there's this thing, you know, the Hollywood high concept where they talk about, you know, man versus machine, man versus nature, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and man versus man. And when you're dealing with these devices, it's man versus machine, of course, because you're trying to, you know, work out how to over, overmatch this device, if you like, um, and neutralize it. But it's also man versus man because you're trying to get into the mind of the bomb maker as well. And there's only a, a finite number of bomb makers with the requisite knowledge and skill sets to manufacture these things in large quantities. So if you can remove the bomb maker from the, uh, the equation, then you reduce these, uh, these devices on the ground. So you're looking at forensics, DNA, biometrics, and, uh, and, and a bomb maker signature, as we call it, you know, so that you can actually not just neutralize it, but actually get a conviction afterwards um, and, uh, and get these guys off the streets. And then it's literally only once you've snipped those last wires and removed the detonator and made it safe, that's when you sort of have the, uh, the come down and everything else then comes flooding back in again. And you start thinking about what you have for dinner tonight and how your football team's doing sort of stuff you know hmm so does that sound a little stressful to you well actually for chris this sounds like bliss you know when i go down to a device now i feel totally at peace you know and i remember doing uh, some research with one of the government research agencies when i was in the army and they put some um, heart rate monitors on us and, uh, and other sensors to see it you know measure the stress levels that we went down to the devices <laughs> And, you know, even then with just a few years experience, most of our pulse rates came down. So, um, you know, that, that was quite interesting. And nowadays I find it very, very relaxing, you know, very, very peaceful. I'm probably most at peace when I'm hunkered over a bomb, to be honest with you. You may be wondering how. How can a man who is being faced with his possible death over and over again under such extreme pressure be more relaxed than, say, if he was just at home drinking a cup of tea. Well, it took practice. Thought, training and introspection. And today, Chris is going to help impart some of that on us. Chris Hunter is an author, a motivational speaker and a bomb technician. You know, he's one of those guys they send in in the movies when the baddie sets a bomb and there's 15 seconds left on the clock. But, yeah, it's not really like that in real life. There's never, ever any curly welly wires. And I've never, ever dealt with a bomb with a uh, uh, a flashing LED timer with the, uh, you know, the red digits counting down. Yeah. Um, but all bombs are timed, radio controlled, um, command initiated or, or booby traps, basically. Um, but they're nothing like the ones in the movies, unfortunately. But they do look good on that camera, don't they, you know, so. Chris is talking to me from a hotel in Iraq. When I ask him what he's doing there, he explains he's using his experience to help the locals. I was in the British Army for, for 18 years. Um, the majority of that time as a counter-terrorist bomb disposal operator. So dealing with what we call improvised explosive devices. So there's explosives all over the world and old, you know, uh, munitions and things like that, unexploded ordnance. But the, uh, the terrorist stuff is called improvised explosive devices. That's the really high-end, nasty stuff, I guess. And in northern Iraq, um, after all the conflicts that uh, we've seen here, um, there are literally millions of improvised explosive devices scattered across the, uh, the country. There's probably about two and a half million IDPs, displaced people, what we call refugees, you know. Um, there's uh, 6.9 million people got uh, um, injured or killed through explosive ordnance and mines and IEDs 
Um, the last time we got stats was about two years ago. Half of those are children. So um, after my military career, um, I decided to get back into bomb disposal um, as a freelancer, if you like. There's a whole load of us with loads and loads of experience. And we come out to countries like this. Um, and I think Iraq's ranked fifth in the world at the moment for explosive violence. And uh, we use the skills that we learned in the military um, with very few resources, you know, very limited resources with the, uh, the NGOs and the charities we work with. And we train up the locals to find the devices. We teach the locals and their children what to look for so that they don't touch them, you know, the civilians. And then once the devices have been found by our trained searchers, we then go in there and, uh, and neutralize them, usually by hand. So uh, it's, um, it's very gratifying work, actually. It's, it's good stuff. Sounds easy, right? Bomb disposal is clearly Chris's passion and skill, but it took him a long time to find it. Chris joined the army as a weedy teen at just 16 during the Cold War, surprisingly as a Russian linguist. I was absolutely useless at it though, so I did it for a couple of years. Then I went to Sandhurst to become an officer. Sandhurst is a Royal Military Academy in the UK. It was probably while I was at Sandhurst, the, you know, you start off doing basic training, you know, same as everybody else, military training. And in the second term, you do all the sort of counterinsurgency type training. And back then, the British Army, you know, used to have a strong presence in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And I remember um, lying in a sort of cordon position on the edge of a field, probably lying in a puddle somewhere, freezing cold, as we used to, and seeing this bomb disposal operator in the distance walking up to this device. It was just a training exercise, but I just thought, that's a pretty, uh, you know, pretty impressive profession. And then a few years later, I was in Northern Ireland, um, and there was a huge car bomb detonated at the headquarters in Northern Ireland, just as I was driving in. Um, so as it exploded, they went into lockdown and I was actually outside the wire, um, literally by the main gate. But there were cars behind and cars in front. And of course, people got out of their cars and ran away. So I was stuck in this almost traffic jam, basically, just watching this whole sort of surreal scene unfold. And uh, literally, you know, people were running away from the explosion. There was screaming, tremors. Car bombs are quite big bangs, you know. Um, and then, of course, people were attending to the other uh, wounded. And then about 10 minutes later, there was a second car bomb detonated outside the medical centre. And it was a very callous attack by the IRA. And it was intended to, you know, to kill the first responders, the medics, people like that. And, um, and there was also this other group of guys, um, about four of them, who had no equipment. They were just running around the car park, smashing the windows and searching for, you know, a third car bomb. And uh, these were the, what we call the ammunition technical officers, the counter-terrorist bomb disposal operators. And I met them all a couple of weeks later in the bar and, um, and just thought, you know, these are really, really nice guys, you know, seemed to gel with them. And I guess that was my epiphany moment, really. That's where I decided to, uh, to pursue the career. And then, yeah, that was back in 1996, I think. Did a year and a half training and then never looked back. The scene that you described, you know, a car bomb going off, it's, it's an absolutely horrific scene. A lot of people in that situation would, you know, be scared and they'd try and run from that scene. But you in the moment were inspired by the people who were helping. Do you think it takes a special kind of person to, to do what you do, to be in the, the profession you're in? When it comes to being one of the people that run towards danger, no, that's the wrong, wrong answer. Run towards people in need. I actually have been to countless war zones, um, which I guess a lot of people haven't done in their lives, you know. And the one thing I've taken away from conflict is that war, in my opinion, brings out the very best in people. And of course, it brings out the absolute worst in human, human nature. Um, but I fundamentally believe that people are good. And I think a lot of people would, if they were put in a situation 
would run towards people trying to help. And I do think people generally have a predisposition towards doing the right thing and would help if they can. I think a lot of the time people just don't have the confidence to do it or they don't think they're equipped to do it, you know, so they follow the herd and, and run the other way. With bomb disposal itself, I don't know if it takes a special sort of person, but we certainly get psychometrically tested, psychiatric evaluated. You need to have certain, I guess, characteristics and certain, you know, certain personality traits. And it doesn't mean you're an adrenaline junkie. You know, we don't look for adrenaline junkies. People often think that. Um, we don't look for people that are, you know, take foolhardy risks. Um, there are people that, you know, take calculated risks, people that think through a problem logically, you know, um, aren't real scaredy cats, but, um, you know, aren't maniacs and lunatics um, and adrenaline junkies either. And, uh, and, you know, have this sort of predisposition towards uh, solving problems quickly. You can imagine that in his time, Chris has had a lot of close calls. But when I ask him what his closest was, he tells me about a time a few years ago where he is now in Iraq. There was a car bomb in, a, in Iraq um, outside an A&E hospital. I remember uh, it was quite obvious that it was booby traps and there was no way. We couldn't send a robot down there because we have sort of certain procedures. We call it a cate, where if there's a potential mass risk to life, then um, we dispense with the robot, dispense with the bomb suit, and we run down there with our snips, you know, and, uh, and do it all by hand um, to try and minimise the risk. But the chances are that, you know, we'd be blown away in an instant. And I thought, no, this is so obviously a come on, it's so obviously a, a booby trap car designed to kill me, um, and I'm just not brave enough to do that. So instead, I, um, I didn't bother with the long walk. I uh, jumped over the fence, went into the side of the hospital, and then went to the front of the hospital and said to, to them, can you get everyone to the back of the hospital? And they were like, don't understand what you're saying. You know, we don't speak English. And I remember, you know, it was in, in an area where Saddam had a palace um, and they were used to the threat of violence. You know, that was an everyday thing with them. And I had a pistol on my, uh, on my thigh. So I pulled out my nine millimeter pistol, waved it around and shouted a lot, you know, and suddenly everyone spoke fluent English, went to the back of the hospital. And, uh, and then I jumped back out the window went back to the safety of the, uh, the cordon position and sent the robot down then because I could. And when we shot the, uh, the boots, I was going to get access to the, uh, the main explosive charge in the boot of this car. And it was all heavily laden down in the back as well. It clearly had a massive charge in the back, you know. And um, the idea was I'd shoot the boot with a, um, we call it a disruptor. It's like a little cannon full of water and it shoots a water charge. And I thought I'd shoot the lock at the back of the boot. Um, that will then flip it open and I could get in there with the robot and dismantle the device basically. And um, as I shot the boots, the whole car exploded. And we discovered afterwards what they'd done is they'd, um, you know, when you open your car door or you, uh, you open the boot and the courtesy light comes on in the car, they wired the, uh, the firing circuit into that. So if I'd gone down there and open a door or open a boot by hand, you know, um, there would have been a pair of smoking boots left. Um, so obviously blew the car to pieces, blew our robot to pieces. And, uh, but nobody was injured in the hospital. So it was a real, real success. How has your relationship with stress changed over your entire career? I think it, it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, we look at fear and we look at danger um, and we look at causes of stress. And danger is real, it's tangible. But fear is just an emotion. Um, fear is about the perception of danger, the perception of trauma, whatever it might be. And I guess, you know, what I've learned to do is differentiate the two, identify what is real and what is a genuine danger and identify what is just 
a fear as a result of a perception and learn how to overcome that um, and therefore focus on, on what's real. And I think that comes with experience. And I think in everyday life, you know, that basically transcends across everything we do in life because, you know, I, I've been really, really lucky as a, as a soldier. Um, I work with the special forces, got to meet some amazingly talented people. And then afterwards I wrote a couple of books and did a bit of TV work and, and met people, you know, from across a range of industries and then do motivational speaking and, and, you know, work with CEOs and organizations of, of big international companies. So I've been very, very blessed to meet some truly amazing people, you know, people that are physically superhuman or, you know, um, intellectually 40 pound brain people, you know. Um, but it's interesting, you know, because as I've met these different people, the ones that tend not to succeed, even though they've got this huge potential, are the ones that are curtailed by fear. And it's usually um, a fear of failure or it's a fear of what other people will think of them you know, other people's perceptions. Um, and in the real world, you know, the chances are you're not going to fail. And if you do fail, then you're going to learn something from it. And in terms of other people's perceptions, you know, most people have actually got too much going on in their lives. They've got too many of their own problems to really, you know, give a damn about, uh, um, you know, the other person's performance. When I talk to people about it and when I talk to groups about it, that's something I really, really focus on because I think we're all, um, susceptible to that, you know, fear curtailing our success in many ways. And when we are faced with actual tangible danger, Chris says the best way to deal with that is to compartmentalise it. If you think about an oil tanker, um, you know, if there's a leak um, in those massive great big ships, then they've got all the different uh, bulkhead doors, they've got all the different compartments. So they lock it down and the water just goes into one part of it and the ship doesn't sink. And I think that's the same way, you know, in everyday life, we can narrow it down to um, a single problem or a series of smaller problems, bite-sized chunks, and then address those or go over them, under them, through them, round them, whatever it might be, bypass them. Um, and then suddenly a massive problem becomes a series of smaller problems that you can actually overcome. It's such a relatable thing that you're talking about, the fear of failure and and the fear of what people will think of you and you know, it's, it's standard across all humans in all situations. What is physiologically, psychologically happening to the brain when you're under stress or feeling fear? We tend to rely on everyday life on our prefrontal cortex. You know, that's the bit of the brain where if we're normal sort of, you know, semi-intelligent human beings, um, we can have a normal conversation, we can carry out normal daily function, um, make decisions, yada, yada, yada. But when you're under extreme pressure, the limbic system takes over your function. We know it as our muscle memory. That's the place where, you know, all the repetition, you know, brushing our hair, tying our shoelaces, men having a shave, whatever it might be. Chris remembers in particular one time where he could say his limbic system took over his function. In Iraq. I'd been a bomb technician for quite a few years. I spent four years serving with the special forces. Considered myself a, you know, um, a fairly decent soldier, um, not just a bomb technician. And we were the bomb disposal team there in southern Iraq in Basra. We went out in the morning, dealt with the first device about sort of eight a.m. in the morning. There was another one in the afternoon, and it was so hot the robot the robot melted, uh, not literally melted, but you know the uh, um, stopped working. So we had to go and get that repaired. And then by the time we got that fixed. We had another device sort of later in the evening and finished about 11 o'clock at night. As we were driving back, you know, after a really, really long, hot, irksome day, 
we were about three kilometers away from our from our um, camp looking forward to getting a good night's sleep and then suddenly we were ambushed um, by insurgents and there was only you know we had three vehicles and eight of us unarmored vehicles and uh, it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever experienced you know I thought I was a fairly decent soldier we train and train and train for everything but an ambush is designed to kill everybody and I just remember at the time as there were bullets coming through the window and uh, and you know explosions going off all over the place it was like being in the middle of a firework display when they were firing rocket propelled grenades and like these orange flames coming coming across the uh, the front of your windscreen you know it was quite quite surreal but the terror was paralyzing chris completely froze and he'd never experienced that before i remember thinking you know i've done all this training i've got all this experience and i feel like a coward you know all this chaos and confusion and i'm in charge i'm the officer i'm the leader um and i'm not making any decisions and it felt like minutes but it was actually only a you know a couple of seconds actually and a whole range of emotions go through your uh, go through your mind it went from sort of you know absolute shock paralyzing fear and then i remember thinking you know about my daughters and a baby daughter and a and a toddler at the time thinking I'd never see them again. Then I even had this really surreal thought where I thought, um, well, once I'm dead, my wife's going to remarry and I'm not going to get a chance to, to vet, you know, whoever their stepfather's going to be. And that made me quite angry, actually, you know, <laughs> not the thought of, uh, you know, her remarrying, but the thought I wouldn't get to vet who the girl's dad was going to be next, you know. Then finally, after what felt like minutes of being frozen to Chris, he was able to kick into action. We started shooting back, basically, drove out and... Uh, I got shot, my number two driver got shot, um, but we survived it and, and we got out of there alive. When it was all over, Chris began processing what he'd experienced. I remember reading about guys that had uh, been involved in terrifying situations where they talk about freezing, you know, this uh, um, fight, fright or flight syndrome, basically, you know. And if you experience something you've never experienced before, you are likely to, uh, to freeze. But I remember uh, I phoned the theatre psychiatric nurse and I ordered all of my team, and I'm not really a sort of guy that gives orders, you know, and throws my weight around. But I was like, right, we're all going in there. We're going to have a big group session, you know, and uh, we're going to sit with this psychiatrist. But what was really interesting was that, um, you know, he said, did you feel, you know, a paralyzing fear? And we were like, yep. Did you feel anger? Yep. Did you feel this, 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 and this? And we all agreed to these, uh, you know, this whole sort of series of events. And he was like, right, basically, you know, since the Napoleonic Wars, this has been documented and every soldier, sailor, airman, you know, civilian experiences exactly the same range of emotions. It's basically a normal response to, to an abnormal event. And I asked him about this sort of freezing aspect of it. And he said, basically, when you're under extreme pressure, your frontal cortex stops receiving the neuro signals. Um, it's a physiological response. So your frontal cortex stops working effectively. So you can't make normal rash decisions or normal rapid decisions, normal common sense, logical decisions. Um, but the limbic system, your muscle memory continues to work. So if you've repeatedly done something to the point where you've learned it to fluency, when you're under extreme pressure, you can still carry out that function. So as school kids, you know, you do, um, you know, the fire alarm drills and that sort of stuff. If you haven't done it before, if it's anything new, the chances are you'll freeze momentarily until your body tells you that you're safe and then the neuro signals start flowing again and you can start using your, uh, your frontal cortex again. And while it's not possible in some situations like the one Chris just told us about, to avoid fear and stress under pressure, 
Try and practice what it is you expect to go through. If you can train and practice and build up muscle memory and learn something to fluency, then when you're under extreme pressure, you'll just keep doing it. Something else Chris says helps to deal with stress under pressure is simply breathing. It sounds absolutely common sense, but you know, you need to get the oxygen to your brain, especially when, you know, the signals are being curtailed. So breathing is, you know, essential. And and the other one is just, you know, taking that sort of condor moment, just having a moment where you step out of the situation and just evaluate and break it down. If you're with a group of people that, you know, you think are fairly intelligent, you know, decision makers, discuss it, rationalize it. But the key is rationalizing you know you look at whatever that issue is you break it down into its component parts put it into context put it into perspective and then make a plan it's actually easy to do but if you get drawn into the problem then you know you just become uh, immersed and suffocated by it and it seems a million times bigger than it really is another way to not get suffocated by the problem or situation you're facing is to remember the aim one of the uh, the principles that's sort of enduring in, in all aspects of, of military life is selection and maintenance of the aim. And uh, I think that's a really, really important lesson in, in life, full stop. Because quite often we'll, we'll begin on a course, you know, with an ultimate goal, and then we get so bogged down with, you know, details, detritus, you know, non-important factors. And then we completely have, you know, mission change and lose sight of what we're actually doing there. We lose sight of the aim. What role does humor play in stressful situations? Oh, great question. It's so important. You know, people talk about the emergency services and the military having, you know, having black humor, dark humor. You've got to be able to sometimes just have a lighthearted moment. And one of the great things about, you know, my colleagues in this industry and certainly in the special forces, um, you know, the, uh, the, the men and women in the special forces, you know, quite often they, they are like superhuman, you know, and you think you've got to be really serious and motivated to, uh, to do that. But they all, you know, one of, one of the components that they're selected for is their humor. Because when the, uh, you know, the brown stuff hits the fan, when you're in that sort of really, really chaotic life and death situation, um, when suddenly, you know, it seems like there's no hope, there's no way out. All you need is one person to crack a funny and suddenly, you know, that laughter resonates, the endorphins kick in and, uh, and, and you're good to go again, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's really, really important. And as for fear of ridicule, when he's faced with it, Chris remembers something that his agent, Mark, told him. When I, when I wrote my... Uh, my first book, um, my literary agent, a wonderful man called Mark Lucas. He's represented a lot of celebrities and he represented the Spice Girls and in particular, Jerry Halliwell. She talked about um, one of the Royal Variety performances that they performed at, at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, as the story goes, um, for example, it might've been Robbie Williams was headlining it. So uh, the compo said, and tonight headline, we've got Robbie Williams. And apparently the, the whole audience cheered. And let's say the capacity is 10,000, you know, 10,000 people waving and cheering and the cameras and the lights sort of going over the audience and seeing them all happy and cheering. And he said, and then we've got the Spice Girls and they were in one of the balconies. So the cameras panned up to the Spice Girls in the balconies and, you know, the lights and stuff going over all the audience. And Jerry Halliwell said, apparently, you know, she looked down and she didn't see the 9,999 people that were all cheering and supportive. She saw the one person giving them the birdie, you know, putting the middle finger up. And, and really interesting because I think that's the way we are. And my, my, the same guy, my agent, Mark, said to me, don't ever bother reading book reviews because, you know, you might have loads of five-star reviews, but you won't even bother reading them. 
but you'll go straight to the one-star review and that's the one you'll take personally. That's the one you'll take to heart, you know. People say to Chris a lot, I couldn't do what you do. How do you do it? Just one mistake and you're done for. Chris doesn't agree. We behave exactly the same way, you know, in whatever industry or whatever aspect of our personal life. It's just, you know, the environment in which we do it. And, and it's interesting as well, you know, when, when I talk to groups of people, say bankers, for example, you know, and they're like, yeah, but, you know, your, your, your job, um, if you get it wrong, you die. And I'm like, you know, we're all, I think, six bad decisions away from homelessness. You know, if we mess up, then the consequences of that. And if we've got, you know, people that we're responsible for, children, partners, family, you know, everything has a consequence, doesn't it? And, you know, whether I die in, in a bomb blast or I die, you know, freezing my ass off in the streets because uh, I'm homeless, um, you know, it doesn't really make any difference. The fact is we're all vulnerable and we're also all equally as uh, open to success as well. And it's just, you know, I, I, I genuinely believe, you know, these, these things that we're talking about now, they're relevant to everybody. You know, it's, it's, it's the way we behave and, and they all have consequences, whether good or bad, don't they? Wait You What is written, produced, recorded by me, yours truly, Erica Mallet. If you like it, as always, pass it on to a friend. Leave me a review. That always helps. And thank you so much for all your reviews so far. That's been crazy. I'll see you again for the next episode of Wait You What. <laughs>